The reading is taken from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 1 to 22. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, I hated history class. Uh, what, whatever the, the era, whatever the, the scope, whether it's ancient history or American history, it always seemed to be the same story every year. Here's a list of names, here's a list of dates, and some definitions of events. Memorize these and regurgitate them on the test. The, it, it was just boring. It, it, was, it seemed irrelevant. I mean, maybe World War II was important to know about, but why did I need to know the names of German generals and where they commanded forces? It seemed irrelevant to me. Now, maybe I was a, a bad student, and you're welcome to think that. Uh, maybe they were bad teachers. It did so happen that many of the, the history teachers were also the high school football coaches, so maybe their skills were uh, elsewhere. But 
Either way, it wasn't really until university, or, or maybe even beyond university, that I started to understand the true value of history. And the true value of history is that by studying it, we gain life experience. You know, in your own life, you gain experience through trial and error. You do things, they work out either well or, or poorly, and you move forward. And it can be painful and difficult to learn that way. But in studying history, we get to see what other people have done in other times and situations, and we get to learn from them. We get to see um, how it worked out for them. And that's far, far easier to learn that way. Now, if that is true of history in general, how much more true is it of salvation history? Salvation history is the, the story of how God has dealt with his people down through the ages, from, from the beginning of creation through to today and, and even beyond today into uh, the, the future. It's the story of how God blessed Abraham, of how God gave his law to Moses, of how David was anointed king, of how the prophets went into exile, and about how God then came in the flesh, and how he sent his spirit to, to drive his apostles out into the world to start the church. It's the one unified story of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And according to verse 11 in our reading today, it all happened and was all written down for us, for you and me. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Now, the reason it happened in the first place and, and the reason it was written down was for us. Now, isn't that amazing? You know, there might be a, a lot to learn from, from the Tang Dynasty, for example, but we would never say that the events of that time and of those people happened for us. The intrigues of that empire were not designed to, to instruct us about something. But the history of God's dealings with his people were designed for us. They did occur for us, and they were written down for us. The Old Testament, and the New Testament for that matter, were so that you and I could learn something from their example, and so that we could be warned by their stories. Now, before we even get into the passage this morning, I, I want to ask, is that how you understand the Old Testament? Is that how you understand the Bible? Because I have met so, so many Christians for whom uh, the Old Testament is something just consigned to uh, another time and era and of no importance to them as far as they can see. They, they view it like I viewed history in high school. Christians who think, isn't that just a bit boring and irrelevant? Or worse, I've spoken to Christians, even fellow pastors, I'm sad to say, who have been comfortable largely ignoring parts of the Old Testament because they think it's, it's mostly just fiction, uh, written by a primitive people about a cruel God. And it's often the same people then who who don't really have much time for Paul either, and they stick to the Gospels. And even in the Gospels, they prefer the red letters, the, the parts that Jesus himself spoke, rather than 
the, the other bits. But if that is how they read things, uh, then according to this, they are completely and tragically wrong. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel and uh, we'll learn from them. I don't want anybody watching today to be ignorant of the fact that the Old Testament is essential for the life and understanding of the Christian. It is for us. We, we can't ignore it. We can't throw it out. We, in, in fact, if we tried to do those things, we would be guilty of one of the oldest heresies in the church. That's Marcionism. Now, Marcion, he was a, a wealthy son of, of a bishop in um, the ancient world. And in about 144 AD, he was excommunicated from the church for saying that the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the God of the Old Testament. Even after he was excommunicated, though, he had a large following. He convinced many other people that that was the case, and it took centuries for his sect to die off. And sadly, it seems he still has followers today, convinced of the same lies. But God has given us the Old Testament for our learning, according to Paul. So with that out of the way, what then should we learn from it? What is Paul saying we need to know about the Old Testament? Well, lots of things. He, he argues from it in lots of his letters. But here in 1 Corinthians 10, we are urged to learn from our ancestors to flee idolatry. Now, that's the big idea of the sermon today. We need to learn from our ancestors to flee idolatry. Remember that uh, in verses 1 to 13, we, we have um, Paul instructing us of how we're to learn from our ancestors. Remember that as we've seen in previous weeks, Paul is addressing the issue of whether Christians should eat food sacrificed to idols. And, um, this would have been a big part of life in Corinth in that day. Christians would have faced a very real dilemma. A Christian, some Christians in the Corinthian church are saying proudly, well, it's our right to do that. It's our right to eat in those temple feasts. While others feel convicted, I, I shouldn't go near it. I shouldn't touch it. And Paul is teaching them how to think Christianly about the problem. Verse 1 carries on his argument from chapters 8 and 9. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Now remember, Paul is writing here to a predominantly Gentile church in Corinth, which makes what Paul writes in verse 1 surprising, doesn't it? He begins to explain to them what they need to learn from the story of the Israelite exodus and the wanderings in the desert. And he says, don't be ignorant about our ancestors, or literally our fathers. Now, there would have been some Jewish background believers there, but most of them would have been converted Greeks. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate to call Israel's family their family story. 
whatever their genetic ancestry, as members of the church, they are every bit as much the people of God as the people who followed Moses in the desert. And again, what an encouragement to those of us from, well, the Philippines, from Nigeria, from America, or from China. More than our skin color, more than our passports or the expectations of the, the culture around us, the Bible contains our family story. It, it's about our family because we get our history and our sense of identity from being part of the people of God. These are our fathers too. And what we find in verses 1 to 6 is that the fathers of the Old Testament, our fathers of the Old Testament, were surprisingly similar to the church today. How so? Well, God gave all of them every spiritual privilege. Verse 1, they, had, they all had experienced God's miraculous salvation from their enemies. Verse 2, they all underwent something analogous to baptism as they passed through the Red Sea or the water and under the, the presence of the cloud, the, the Spirit of God made present to them. Verses 3 and 4 say they partook in something analogous to the Lord's Supper as they ate manna and they drank water that had been miraculously spiritually provided for them in the wilderness. And verse 4, they enjoyed a special spiritual closeness, provision, and grace from Christ himself. Yes, the, our fathers in the Old Testament, uh, they experienced every benefit that we in the, in the church today experienced on Paul's telling here. All the same spiritual benefits we do. They experienced salvation, God's cleansing, His provision, His presence with them. And if you are a Christian, that is your experience too. Or at least that is what is true about you. Christ has saved you by grace. In baptism, you have been welcomed in to His family by the Spirit of God. In the Lord's Supper, Christ has given you spiritual food and, and drink to nourish you. And Christ is your rock. He accompanies you through life and even through death and into eternity. Isn't it wonderful to be a member of the church? Aren't there so many privileges for us? But Paul says, even with all of that, verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Even though God had shown all of them favor in every possible way, most of their bodies were scattered in the wilderness like um, corpses on a battlefield. That's the sort of terminology here. And this Hebrew Paul is using classic English understatement when he says most, because you might remember from the books uh, of Exodus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that the vast number of people Moses led out of Egypt, all but two of those generation died in the desert. Only two people who left Egypt with Moses went into the Promised Land. That is Caleb and Joshua. How 
did things go so terribly wrong? Well, if, you, if you're familiar with those first few books of the Old Testament, you will know, but Paul goes on to explain why God was not pleased with most of them. Verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In verses 7 to 10, Paul then describes four different episodes where they set their hearts on evil things and the consequences that they faced because of that. And he urges us to learn the lesson and to make a different choice. Verse 7, Paul says, Do not be idolaters. And he quotes from the story uh, in Exodus 32 of the golden calf. When Moses is on the the mountaintop of Mount Sinai, he's making a, a covenant with God. He's receiving the law. And right at the foot of the mountain, as he's communing with God, at the foot of the mountain, the Israelite people had um, crafted a golden calf from their gold. And they began worshiping it. They began bowing down to it. They began, uh, according to Paul, feasting before it. They ate and drank and indulged in revelry in its presence. Surprising that he he doesn't mention the worship of the calf here. He only mentions the feasting. He pointed out that they were doing exactly the same thing that the Corinthians were saying they had a right to do in the temple feasts. Then verse 8, he says, do not commit sexual immorality. And here Paul makes reference to another episode from uh, the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 25, as the Moabites were the enemies of God's people. They wanted to destroy the Israelites, but they were frustrated in being unable to do that. And so they decided, we'll send some of our women in, they will uh, seduce them, and they will give us victory over these Israelites. Well, once The men were thoroughly interested in the women. They were enticed by them. The women said, hey, why don't we go worship uh, our Moabite gods together? And they entered a covenant with Baal Peor, the the Moabite god there. Sexual immorality and idolatry, they always go together in the Bible. And they did in this story and they do in Corinth. And like two sides of the same coin. And so the thing that the Moabites were powerless to do to God's people, God's people brought on themselves as they, uh, as they turned from the Lord. And God sent a plague on the, on the camp to destroy them. And, and then verse 9, we see uh, Paul says, Do not test Christ. And he references a story from Numbers chapter 21, just after they had been granted this miraculous victory over their enemies, the Israelites begin to complain against God. They go to Moses and they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to let us die in the wilderness? For we have no food and no water. And by the way, we loathe this worthless food. Well, therefore, God then sent vipers to attack them, and many of them died. Their complaint, it didn't even make sense. We have no food and water, and by the way, we don't like the food that you're giving to us. Uh, They tested God, and the vipers destroyed them. And then verse 10, Paul says, Do not grumble. 
Here, Paul uses the word that characterized the people of God throughout their entire desert wanderings. They were always grumbling about something. They grumbled about the food, they, they grumbled about their leaders, they grumbled about God himself, that he was unfair to them, they, they missed Egypt, they wanted to go back, and they were a grumbling people in general. And their ungrateful, their rebellious attitude brought God's judgment in various ways uh, on them in the desert. Now, Paul says that these stories should serve as warnings to us. Now, some of the Corinthians, they wanted to go to these temple feasts where they had the best parties happening and, and where the businessmen networked and uh, where the social life was organized. They argued it was no big deal because idols are just false gods anyway. They're, they're not, um, they're, they don't exist in any way. But only scratched the surface of their kind of nonchalant attitude. And, and really they thought it was a big deal. Because they thought that it would be a big deal to miss out on the fun times, on the social events, on the business opportunities. They thought it would be, well, unfair. They might have been grumbling something like, well, what good is it being saved from sin and hell if we just live as social outcasts? So their theological arguments, they were just self-justifications, really, for doing what was easiest for them. But Paul was telling them that their confidence was misplaced, and they shouldn't arrogantly assume that what was convenient for them was therefore um, fine with God. They think they can do what they like and Jesus will always take them back. They thought they could flirt with idolatry. They, they thought they could enjoy the revelry of the temple. They, they could live it up at the after party and then afterwards they just go and uh, go to church, say their prayers, and Jesus will be just fine with that. But the warning of the Old Testament shows that they were playing a dangerous game, one that they could easily lose. And so Paul ends his history lesson with a warning and a reassurance to them. First, the warning to the overconfident Christian. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. For all the privileges, the rights, and the freedoms that we have as members of the church, there is no room for a nonchalant attitude to idolatry. You can't have a, a do-what-you-like attitude towards sin. You know, being baptized, eating bread and wine, having spiritual experience, saying a prayer many years ago, they are no security against idolatry. They can't protect us from the consequences of it. After all, our fathers had all those privileges as well, and it didn't protect them. Spiritual maturity means being cautious about sin. Because when the stakes are so, so high, how could you be uh, arrogant and overly confident? It's better to be cautious and remain standing in faith than it is to be confident and fall. So that's the warning to overly confident Christians. But then, secondly, Paul gives reassurance to struggling Christians. No temptation has overtaken you, verse 13, except what is common to mankind. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Christian brother or Christian sister, I want you to be encouraged by this. Temptations that you face are not unique, not uniquely strong and not uniquely difficult to overcome. You might be tempted in different areas from other people, and um, you might be tempted to uh, something stronger than, than the people around you. But temptation is common to all of us, and all of us can resist it with God's help. Every temptation that you and I face can be defeated, and that's what Paul is saying. No circumstances, no impulses, no emotional uh, issues or, or difficulties can force you into sin. You are not a slave to sin. You are a free person in Christ, and God is faithful. He will help you to either bear the temptation or to escape from the temptation. There will always be a way out, and so you need never sin. And yet, of course, that could be uh, a bit um, of a, a hard thing to, to hear as well, because that means every time that you slip up, every time that you sin, uh, well, you could have escaped. But God is faithful. He will help you. And so uh, there is no established pattern of sin in your life that you can't break. I want you to be encouraged by that, that no sin is inevitable, that God is faithful. So having dealt with uh, the pride of self-proclaimed strong Christians, Paul now turns to the main application that we should learn from our Old Testament ancestors. And that is, in verses 14 to 22, that we should flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. That's the imperative in verse 14. Therefore, because of everything written for us in the Old Testament, flee from idolatry. Treat idolatry as the toxic waste that it is. You wouldn't hang around toxic waste. You, you wouldn't play with toxic waste yourself, and you would do a lot to try to encourage other people to stay away from it as well, especially those you love. And even if it made business easier, or filled up your social calendar, or it made relationships go a bit smoother, there's no way that you would be involved with toxic waste. And that is exactly how we should, as Christians, think of idolatry. We must flee from it. And to motivate us to flee, Paul reminds us of just how wonderful it is to be a Christian, first of all, in verses 15 to 17. And then he gives us a test to apply to different situations of idolatry in verses 18 to 22. So first he says, being a Christian is wonderful because we have fellowship with Christ and we share in all his benefits. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is it not the cup of thanksgiving which we give thanks? Is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many 
are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. And we're going to talk more about the Lord's Supper in a couple weeks' time. But the important thing to understand from this passage is that when Christians partake in the Lord's Supper together, we are actually participating in Christ. And we are sharing in the benefits of his death. Participation, that's a translation of the word koinonia, which you might be familiar with. You might have heard that in the past. That could also be translated as fellowship or, or communion or close relationship or a share. The bread and wine that we share together gives us koinonia with Christ and with one another. Now, if that is what the Lord's Supper is, then notice what it's not. It's not, as Roman Catholics allege, a meal where the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine change somehow magically. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's just normal bread. It's just normal wine that we eat. But neither is the Lord's Supper just a symbolic meal by which we remember some historical event. Now, that's not what Paul's saying either. The Lord's Supper is spiritually effective. God uses this bread and wine that's just from the supermarket, and he uses it to actually give us what it symbolizes. Um, fellowship with Christ and a share in the benefits of his death and unity with one another. And that is the joy of being a Christian, isn't it? We have fellowship with God himself, and we are invited to feast together with him as family members. We are spiritually united to Christ and with one another. We are nourished by the assurance of God's love and forgiveness for us. We have participation with Christ, and there isn't anything better out there. And so Paul says, flee from idolatry. Flee from anything that would threaten that close relationship that God has given us in Christ. But say we get that. Say we want to stay faithful to Christ. How do we flee from idolatry? How do we know if we're crossing the line? Well, in verses 18 to 22, Paul gives us a test to apply to different situations so that we might find uh, out whether we should do one thing or not. And we might call it the participation test. Look again at verses 18 to 22 with me. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Well, no. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As Christians, we have fellowship with Christ, and we are not free, therefore, to make Jesus jealous. It's not possible to have fellowship with both Christ and with demons. Jesus will not allow it. He will not stand for it. 
And so, if we find ourselves in situations where we are being asked to participate in idolatry, regardless of our intentions, as Christians we must refuse. We must not take part in any rituals, any ceremonies, any practices that could indicate participation in non-Christian worship. So what might that look like? Well, in general, we should avoid actively offering anything to gods or ancestors or, or other objects of worship. And so lighting joysticks or, or laying food and, and drink on an altar or saying prescribed words or making ritual movements, those things might convey participation. In Hong Kong, we, we might find ourselves in a situation uh, attending a, a funeral where there are uh, traditional Chinese religious uh, rituals going on, or maybe Buddhist rituals. And so I guess it seems to me that Christians could attend a funeral like that, but they shouldn't do things like offering incense, or installing a spirit tablet, or joining in with the chanting, or kowtowing before the deceased. But I reckon idolatry often takes different forms in the West, and so we don't often have statues that we bow before or perform actions for the dead. That's not uh, that common in the West. Our idols are often a bit harder to see. Our idols are often things like money or, or sex or power. And so it's worth thinking about the participation test with that as well. So if your money is an idol, uh, if loads of people around you worship the, the idol of money, and you find yourself wanting to make a big purchase, and it's not because you need a new car, it's not because you need a, a new handbag, it's because you want to show off how well you're doing financially. Well, that would be participation with demons, wouldn't it? And if sex can be an idol, and, and you find yourself flirting with a married colleague at work because it, it makes you feel good, it gives you a thrill, well, that would be idolatry too, wouldn't it? And Paul would say, flee from idolatry. It isn't worth it. Consider all that you have in Christ. His death has enabled you to feast at his table forever in the new creation. And if you're willing to, to lose that for a thrill or, or for a sense of superiority or so that you don't feel awkward in, in front of other people, well, you've missed something very serious. You haven't seen the warning of the Old Testament. Learn from our ancestors and flee from idolatry. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, organized and orchestrated all the events of the Old Testament and the New to teach us all that we need to know about how to relate rightly to you and how to live lives that are pleasing to you. Please help us to flee from any form of idolatry. Uh, whatever um, cultural expectations might be whatever might be easiest to do. Help us to flee from idolatry and cling to Christ. And I pray that we might enjoy our fellowship with him more and more 
as the weeks and months go on. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.